Good morning, everybody. I love that I could actually see everybody's names, because uh, names are names are hard for me. Um, so I'm glad that we have this name tag Sunday. That I don't have to dig from my memory to remember everybody's names. Sometimes I forget my own name, my children's names. It's all good. All right. So as we continue in our foundation series, as a as a church of foundation, as we've spoken before, foundation of Everything that we do is built on Jesus Christ. That as Christians, we know that we are called to be imitators of Christ and that Jesus is the example for us in how we are to be as a church. Jesus moved both in wisdom and in power and that the two things, wisdom and power, are two sides of the same coin. In Matthew 12, it says this is that Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Today, as Pastor Richard mentioned, I'm going to be preaching on miracles, yet why am I starting with this verse? Because miracles are signs and wonders, right? And yet Jesus says, to the scribes and Pharisees, you evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. Now, a lot of people take this and says, well, see what Jesus said here? This is the reason why we don't have miracles today. This is the reason why signs and healing don't happen because, look, Jesus said, you evil and adulterous generation. But one of the things that I, I, I want to point out here is that remember when we talked, when I, when I brought up how we need to know the word? When I spoke about, like, we need to know the word of the Lord, we need to know the word of Jesus? Well, part of it is that we need to know the context that this was given. We need to know why Jesus said these things, so that we don't just get these things thrown at us and said, oh, well, Jesus said, only an evil and adulterous generation seeks for signs. Well, if we read the beginning, and we read back a couple, couple verses. We don't even have to go that far. There's a story right before this happens that Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And so Jesus healed this man that, that had this arm that, that was withered. It was smaller. It, it was weak. It didn't have anything. And Jesus healed him. And the Pharisees saw that. He's like, oh, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. That's not good because the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do anything. This is according to Jewish tradition. The Sabbath, nothing can be done. Not even chores, not even cooking, nothing can be done. But Jesus healed on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees and the scribes were here, and they were intentionally trying to trap Jesus. That's the whole story. That's the background of why th- where this verse actually comes from. So we need to know the context of where th- scripture, what, what scriptures are being thrown at us before we actually use these scriptures to defend our position. So what Jesus was actually doing here was Jesus said, so we we know the scribes and the Pharisees, they're here to trap Jesus. They're trying to entrap him somehow. They're like, show us a sign. The Pharisees are saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Jesus knew exactly what was happening here. And Jesus knew that what the Pharisees were looking for is for him to prove that he was who he claimed to be. 
that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. So therefore, he must do the same signs as God. So they're looking for the signs from the Old Testament like a pillar of fire or like water coming out of rocks. Or they're looking for manna on the ground. They're, they're asking Jesus, show us a sign. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm calling these out and you guys are evil and adulterous because you guys just saw a miracle happen and yet you don't even care. All you care about is show us a sign. They did not care about the well-being of a man. They, did not, they saw a miracle of a man's hand literally being regenerated, bones growing, tendons coming together, muscles forming to a place where the arms were equal. Yet they're like, show us a sign. And Jesus is, like, is calling them out on that. He's like, you guys aren't looking for what I'm giving you. The sign has already been there. The miracles have happened. You guys refuse to see these things because you have an agenda. Because you guys are holding on to something. And when you hold on to that thing, you're not able to see what the power of God is able to do. And so today we're going to talk about that. Today we're going to go from this place of Jesus saying, calling out the evil and adulterous generation. Not because we want to see miracles or anything. It's not because we, 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 we fail to see these things. It's because our hearts are hardened to these things. Jesus then goes to say, you will only be given the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now that's a very interesting phrase, right? Like, what does that mean? I mean, if you have your Bibles, keep reading. But really what Jesus was highlighting, I'm just going to give you the Cole's note on it, or John's note on it, because that's not the part of what I'm going to focus on today. But in the, in the aspect of Jonah, in the story of Jonah, Jonah, as everybody knows the story. He's called to Nineveh. He runs away. He gets thrown off a boat. He gets swallowed by a whale. Spits, out, spits him out on the beach, preaches the, to Nineveh, Nineveh repents, and God spares them. That's the story. But what happens in Jonah, and what, what Jonah shows us, is that Jonah basically is an illustration of how Jesus works. That in the story of Jonah, we see that both power and wisdom is working together, that both power and wisdom brought breakthrough to the people of Nineveh. And what that happened was it released the hand of God to work wonders, wherein the entire city of Nineveh repented. And then the wisdom aspect is what sustains that breakthrough power. Wisdom that gives us access to a lifestyle to, that testifies of God's nature and invites others to it. Greg spoke last week on the boldness of, of speaking or preaching. We have to speak like Jonah, speak like Jonah to, the, to Nineveh that represents the bold teaching of God, that represents the bold preaching of the gospel that releases the hand of God to work wonders. Jesus' ministry focused on this. Matthew 10, it says, he says to his disciples, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. 
This is the command of Jesus. This is how the kingdom of heaven will be seen. Heal the sick, raise the dead, drive out demons. These are the miraculous works of the church. This is the command that Jesus has given us. This is what Jesus said, go and do these things. What is a miracle? A miracle is simply a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by nature or scientific law and is therefore considered to be the work of divine agency. The power of God is seen through his miracles and the wisdom of God is seen through his word. The wisdom of God sustains his power and the miracles that we experience today. So today, we're going to unpack that, but before we do that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, Lord, that you could give us your spirit so that we could understand the works of the church and then we could understand the ministry that we are a part of, the ministry that you've called us to. So, Father God, as we come before you today, Lord, may you open our hearts, open our eyes to the things that are unseen for us. Lord, let us have faith to grow in this place. Let us have faith to, to walk this out with you, Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you. We love you. Lord, may your spirit fall on your people today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see a lot of miracles that happen. Some things are absolutely supernatural and big and, 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 and unexplainable, like fire coming from heaven. Others are just simply people being healed, people being touched by the hand of God, increasing their faith because they see Jesus. God proves his might through the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Jesus comes as both fully God and fully man. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus, as a man, gives us an example of how the Holy Spirit works and that we are called to imitate. If we believe that, then why do we not see more of these things in the church? If we believe that everything in this book that is written is true and that we are to live this out, why do we not see this in the church so much? If Jesus has set the foundation for the church and gave the command to his disciples, then are we not supposed to do the same thing? So we need to look what happened through the history of the church. You see, throughout, we've been preaching about, I've been showing you kind of snippets of kind of how the church has emerged, right? From the early church when Jesus passed away and the apostles take over the ministry of Jesus, to when the church started to become institutionalized through the, 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 the efforts of Constantine. And then how Reformation comes in the 1500s through, through Martin Luther. We see the progression of the church and we see how the church has progressed. So why do we have these, this, this place now where we're looking at the church and how different it is from the early church? The church that Jesus actually established. Well, there's two great theological terms out there. The first one is called cessationism. The second one is called continuism, continuationism. So what is cessationism and continuationism? Cessationism actually believes that the gifts of the Spirit, specifically the gifts of tongues and some of the miracles, the mir miraculous gifts and healing have ceased with the age of the apostles or when the canon of the Bible has come together. Meaning around 300 years after the church was established that the 
this is what the dispensationalists believe, okay? So dispensationalism, another big term for you, is a hermeneutic type. That's another big term. <laughs> Throwing all these things out for you. You know what? These things are good for you to learn because these are things for you to actually come to understanding when you actually understand what the Bible is about. So dispensa dispensationalism is actually how, how they see that the scholars believe that there are specific time and things that happen in sequence, right? And so on the in theology, there's always opposite ends of everything. So the opposite side of dispensationalism is covenant, okay? And then, so the opposite of sensationism is continuationism. Let's go into this because I love this stuff and I know you guys love this stuff too, right? Say amen to that. So 300 years after the church was established, we see that th that the, peop the people started believing that this, there's a time and a place for how God moves and that these things, these miracles happen to authenticate the apostles during the, the early preaching of the gospel. Remember, the New Testament wasn't written when Jesus until after Jesus died. Right? It's the apostles that actually wrote the New Testament. And so the New Testament still was in the process of writing. So the church was actually learning through the epistles that we find in the Bible. So all the epistles, the letters of Paul, all of that, that in the New Testament, these were all being formed as the early church was coming up. That's why we see a picture of what the early church looks like. And so what the cessationists believe is that after the apostles needed these gifts, so all the gifts that are listed out in 1 uh, Corinthians 12, they needed these things to authenticate that they were preaching a gospel that was like Jesus, right? And once all of that happened, and the canon of the Bible was put together, there is no longer a need for miracles and healings and the miraculous gifts to happen because the gospel is now formed into the Bible, and that's what cessationism be believes, that all of these things and all of these gifts do not exist today and that we have the Holy Word that leads us and guides us and, and gives us what we need to preach the gospel. That's what cessationism is. I grew up in a cessationist tradition. I grew up in an alliance church. On top of that, it was a Chinese alliance church, which makes it even more conservative because Chinese like to take it to the extreme and then I went to seminary at Moody, which is also a cessationist theology uh, school. And so for me, this is what I was brought up. I was told that and, and taught and trained that all of these things are true, but they are not for today. That they're not for today because we don't need those things for today. That we have the word of God and that these things are not as important anymore. But did you know that even in cessationism, there are actually degrees and different types of cessationism? That there are some things that are called classical cessationists, which believe the same things, but that occasionally that supernatural things still happen today. Or there's something called the concentric sensationist, which believes that the miraculous gifts have ceased. However, in unreached areas, you'll see them because it's an aid for the gospel to actually move forward. 
So even within cessationism, there is a lot of variances. Well, what is the opposite of that? It's called continuationism. This is the belief that all the spiritual gifts, including healings, tongues, and miracles, are still in operation today, just as they were in the days of the early church. Now note that these terms are actually relatively new. In, in, in the span of theology, in the span of all of these things, these two terms are actually relatively new. They were really only developed in the 1950s. So many of some of us here in this room were actually already alive by the time that these terms actually came out. I wasn't, but some of you were. <laughs> Just saying. That these terms and what, continue, what continuationism believes is that for the most part from 380 until the early 1900s, this is when Pentecostalism actually came up in 1906 through the Azusa revivals. That's when um, the Pentecostal denomination, the Pentecostal church actually came out. And then out of the Pentecostal denomination came out the charismatic movement in the 1550s and 60s, which all believe in this continuationism, okay? Continuationism operates just like the early church did. It believes that when Jesus left the church to the apostles to build, that the Holy Spirit is given as a helper not only to the apostles, but to the church. So therefore, the gifts of the Holy Spirit continue to manifest throughout the church. You know, what's funny is that throughout all of these things, that cessationism was actually developed in the 1500s. It was something that, that John, John Calvin, you guys know who he is? He's a great reformer. Calvinist theology came out of it, right? Five-point theology, five-point, all of us know all of this, right? Because we're all scholars in here, okay? That Calvin, John Calvin was the one that actually started the movement of cessationism. So be before the 1500s, cessationism actually didn't exist in the church. That the Roman Catholic Church, the one that was started by Constantine, to the 1500s, so from 300 AD to 1500 AD, the, the Roman Catholic Church operated in a place where actually they still believed in miracles and healing and all of those things. And it wasn't until the Reformation through Luther happened that John, John Calvin came out and wrote up his points of Calvinism that cessationism actually began. So really, cessationism only really came in to the church in about 1500s. And then from that point, through the Protestant, the, the Protestant movement, which is what we are part of, that cessationism actually started to come, come into our theology. But it wasn't called cessationism at that point. It was just church. And it wasn't until the 1900s that we actually started to believe that, oh, actually there is a divide here. What I'm trying to say here is that in theology, there's always going to be division. As we read the word, there's always going to be division. There's always going to be one side that believes one thing, another side that believes another thing. And my point is not to convince you in terms of where you should stand 
in theology. My, my job is to present to you. This is what the Bible talks about. This is what the Bible says. Now, where do we stand as a church in terms of what we are supposed to do? So why do these things matter? Because we need to know our cultural climate. We need to know not just what's out there in terms of cultural climate, but what's within the church, right? Because we're in a universal church, yet there's so many denominations, so many divisions, so many things that divide the church. We need to know where these divisions come from, why there, there are these divisions, and, and where does it teach about these things in the Bible? Okay, that's why I'm talking about all these things. These are for you to know so that you could be the greatest apologetic that there is out there to defend the gospel. In Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the spiritual gifts for the church. Whether these gifts are miraculous or non-miraculous, these things are to build up and to edify the church. It's not used for personal gain or purposes, nor is it a sign of maturity. It is for loving people. That's what the spiritual gifts are for. It's for loving people. That's what the miraculous gifts are for. It's for loving people. It's not for anything else but that. It is the extension of God's love to the earth. That's what miraculous gifts are for. The miraculous gifts should always point us to Jesus. This is probably the biggest fear in cessationist theology is that we focus too much on the supernatural and not enough on seeking Jesus. There's, there always needs to be a balance. The experience of the miraculous and spiritual gifts should always point us to God and lead us to desire to grow to be more like Jesus. In fact, the miracles should always be in accordance with the scripture. Actually, in everything that we do as Christians, even our service should be in accordance with scripture. This is our reference. This is our guide. This is where the power needs to come from. You see, the reality is that both sides of these, this theolog theological debate have things that are good and right. And neither side of theology is absolute, so therefore we are able to draw from both sides. And I believe that as a church at Five Stones, that we are allowed to draw from both sides. Theology is just a way for us to come into understanding. It's about growing in our faith journey and not what defines us. What defines us is God the Father that created us. And when we know more of him, we know more of ourselves. We could bring both sides. The strength of cessationism is that they're strong in the word. They study the word and they study every aspect of the, the hermeneutics in cessationism is amazing and solid and strong. In continuationism, what we can learn from that is that the gifts actually still happen for the experience of God. That miracles were there so that we could experience the love, the kindness, and the power of God. That we don't just worship a God that is just of knowledge, but that we worship a God that has power and strength. I grew up in Edmonton in the 1980s. 
And for anybody that knows anything about Edmonton, because there's not a lot of things that you need to know about Edmonton, is that in the 80s, those were the glory days of the Edmonton Oilers. <laughs> right? For those that know hockey, five Stanley Cups. <laughs> five. How many does Vancouver have? <laughs> oh, there's no fingers there. Five Stanley Cups. Glory days. Let's just say every single kid was obsessed with hockey back in the 80s. Obsessed. I was obsessed. I, Edmonton Oilers, okay, dream team. Wayne Gretzky, the great one. Okay, he has a nickname called the great one. He had a team with Mark Messier, Grant Fear, Yuri Curry, Bill Ramford, Kevin Lowe. Every kid idolized every single one of these players. And of course, as a young, small Asian kid that played hockey back in the day, Gretzky was my hero. Why? Because Gretzky was small. He gave me hope. <laughs> as a small Asian hockey player. What was Gretzky known for? His speed. He was known for his, his agility, his, his, his athleticism. He was known. I know so many facts about Gretzky <laughs> because he's my hero. Did you know that he was born in Brantford, Ontario? Did you know that his birthday is January 26th? <laughs> Do you know how I remember that? Because my birthday is February 25th, so it's plus one, minus one. <laughs> That's how I remember these things. And it, the fact that this is still in my head is because he was my hero. Uh, April 6th, <laughs> I got you. But that's the thing is that when we, when we have someone that's our hero, we can learn everything about them. That we, we research everything about them, we know everything about them, we even copy the way that he plays. I remember, this is the strangest thing, because I, was, I played position defense, so I never really crossed the blue line. But, you guys have heard, ever heard of Gretzky's office? Yeah? Yes. Gretzky's office behind the net. This is, he made this famous. He would go behind the opposition's net to watch his play, to set up his play. That became known as Gretzky's office. Because that's, every time he went back there, almost guaranteed a goal was going to happen. Right? Either it was an assist or he, he scored. Goalies hated it. As a defenseman, I tried to go into Gretzky's office, okay? This is the worst play for any hot. I remember getting yelled at by my coach because he's like, what are you doing back there? I'm at Gretzky's office. Come on, guys. He's like, yeah, you're on the other side of Gretzky's office. Stay on that side. Anyways, it gets to a place where we could emulate everything that they do. That we want to, we, we want to know everything that they, they do know his skill sets, know how he skates, know how he passes. Did you know that his slap shot actually slowed the pace down of the game? But yet his slap shot was so powerful that he always scored because nobody knew the rhythm of how he played. That's how good he was. Enough about Gretzky, though, because <laughs> it's not about Gretzky. I don't even know how I got into that tangent. Um, 
But the thing is, what my point here is that we can know everything about that person. I knew everything about Wayne Gretzky, but I've never met him in my life. I didn't have a relationship with him. But yet I could still do the same thing that he does, learn everything that he has, but never experience the person of Gretzky. And sometimes when we look at the Bible and look at our our relationship with the church, that's exactly how it is, that we read the Bible, we understand everything about it, but we lack the experience with Jesus Christ because we refuse to acknowledge that his power exists that we never get to experience the goodness of God or experience the goodness and the love of Jesus Christ, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. That's exactly how it is that sometimes we can come to church and idolize Jesus and idolize the word, but we never get to experience him. When we read the Bible, we know the power of God, the character of God. We could even teach others about who God is. When I was in Denmark on our scouting trip, I met pastors, not pastors, I don't want to say pastors, they're priests in the Lutheran church that are Bible scholars. They know everything about the Bible. That every Sunday they stand in front of a church and they preach the word of God, but yet they themselves have not confessed their sins and said that they are, are Christians. They have not confessed their sins and said, Jesus is their Lord. They know the Bible. They think it's great morality to follow. But they have no relationship. These churches are dead churches. I walked in. There was 10 people. Beautiful, beautiful buildings. Amazing architecture that could fit hundreds of people in these churches. Yet when I walked in that church and for that service, there was 10 people in there and a priest that was preaching. That is the majority of churches in Denmark. That the majority of state-run churches look like that. Because there's no power. All there is is just a lifestyle of this is what we should do and this is what how we should live. And they're good suggestions, but without the experience of Jesus, it's very hard to live out the way that Jesus called us to live. There's no wisdom that comes with it. There's no wisdom to sustain some of the hardship that Christians need to to go through. There's no wisdom and no power to sustain the suffering that sometimes Christians need to go through or to go into a place of surrendering ourselves to this, this aspect, this lifestyle that we call Christianity. There's nothing there. We cannot live without the experience of God. David writes in Psalms 34, 8, it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. That's a weird thing to say, to taste God. What does that mean? What David was writing here was experience God. Allow God to move through your life. Allow God to, to pour down his love. Allow God to, 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 to reach out his hands for you. And when you are able to grasp that, you get to taste 
You see, it says taste and then see. So many of us have come into Christianity because we experience God first before we see who God actually is. We get to taste and see. We get to experience God. We live in a foodie city. I think Vancouver writes, their taste buds are like 10 times better than the rest of the world because we just have good food here. Everywhere we go, we have the, some of the best restaurants around. When you go and taste something, it's an experience, right? It's not just, oh, this is good food. My wife is Indian, and so she makes a lot of Indian curries. And when I was married, when we first married, every single curry looked exactly the same to me. Like, it didn't matter which curry she was making. It looked exactly the same. It's, it's basically like a pile of mush to me. But when you start tasting, you start experiencing what this food is about, man, you fall in love with Indian food. You fall in love with all the spices, like to make the masala. There's so many spices that go into burning off the masala in order to create this curry. It mingles together and you see the intricacies of this curry. And now when I look at a curry and I see the different types of curry, that man, I could tell you everything that goes into that curry now. But first I need to taste it, to experience it, because when I just saw it, everything looks the same. Right? Have you guys gone to an Indian buffet? Everything looks slightly different. It's a different shade of orange. Right? <laughs> Every single curry is a different shade of orange. But when you start tasting, you begin to understand the intricacies that go into it. So David said, taste first. Experience it first. Before you even see anything, before you even try to understand anything, Taste it. Tasting is experiencing something that completely invigorates your soul, that completely invades your soul, that this is an opportunity for heaven to come down into your life and to touch you in the places that you need healing, that you need miracles, that you need brokenness to be mended. That this is where you get to allow Jesus to come into your spirit and says, let me heal you. Let me bring healing to the places that are broken. Let me pour out my love to you. It's where we get to experience the love of God that God says, I see you. I see you. I don't see your sins. I don't see all the wrong things that you've done, the things that you need to make right. I see you as the one that I created, and I love you. 
And Jesus brings healing to all those things, whether they are physical things that we need to be healed, whether they are emotional things that need to be healed, whether they're spiritual things that need to be healed, that God brings healing and miracles into your life so that you get to experience him. Miracles of God is God's mercy, grace, love, and kindness that saturates into every aspect of our life. When you see and experience that, you begin to see that God is there. And when you begin to see God, the Holy Scriptures come alive to bring revelation to who he is and the wisdom in living out the life he has created for you to live out. Wisdom gives us access to a lifestyle that testifies of God's nature. This is the way Jesus lived in power and wisdom. I'm going to end off with the same verse, but the message translation, because I think this makes it very personal for us. It says, don't begin by traveling to some far-off place to convert unbelievers, and don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. Go to the lost. Confuse people right here in your neighborhood. Tell them that the kingdom is here. Bring health to the sick. Raise the dead. Touch the untouchable. Kick out the demons. You have been treated generously, so live generously. To live with miracles is a calling because there are people around us that are hurting and broken, and they're waiting for someone who knows God and that they will stand with them in these times. That miracles is an extension of the church for people to see. It's for the lost to come. It's to bring glory to him. And when we see those things, it edifies the church. It brings joy into the church. It brings hope into the church. That's what this is for. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are a God with great power. And Lord, that you've called us into this ministry with you and with the Holy Spirit as our helper. We want to be able to be an extension of who you are. So Father God, as a church, we come before you and we just lay everything in front of you. All of our convictions, all of our knowledge, all of, our, all of these things, and we just ask for your spirit to fall on us and fill us with who you are so that we can experience who you are. So, Father God, we just pray, Lord, that what we heard today goes deep within our heart. And Lord, that we want to experience you daily. So Lord, convict us and refresh us and give us a new perspective on how you want us to move as a church.
pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor John established something for us really important this morning. There's been a, a chill over the church for a long time, an intellectual chill. And that chill creates an environment in which the people of God cannot move into his goodness. We're paralyzed, we're frozen. And these thoughts that John shared with us are so important to release us so we come into that that freedom that God has for us. God wants to bring the warmth back to the church, the warmth of his presence. And fire is just the warmth of God exponential. And he wants our church to enter in to that warmth and to that fire and to that experience and to leave the chill behind to say, you know what, God, you are here. You're here to touch us. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm going to fast forward one of my key thoughts in two weeks when I share. We just heard from Psalm 34 that God is good, right? Taste and see that he is good. But you know what? God is not just good. He's perpetually good. He doesn't have an off day. He doesn't say, I'm not into it today. I don't really want to think about my church. He is perpetually good. He is always good. That means when we come into the house of the Lord, his personality defines our atmosphere. Just because you don't feel good, just because you're going through a trial, you know what? God is there for you. But it's his goodness that defines the house. And we enter into that goodness. And that house, that goodness is called the kingdom of God. That's why he taught the apostles, declare the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was code for the goodness of God is at hand. And what comes out of the goodness of God, the miracles of God, the signs and wonders of God, If we seek the face of God, if we seek the personality of God, all the power comes. And so, Lord Jesus, would you make us a campfire? Would you light campfires, God, across the city that people would come and be warmed by the power of your presence, by the preaching of your word, by the truth that sets us free? Increase our faith. Quicken it. Lord, we don't need to have big faith. We only need to have faith of a mustard seed as we were taught, that proper understanding that releases, God, your goodness in our midst. Do a work, a corporate work, God, in each of our hearts. We give our days, God, the coming days to you, that you would bring great glory, God, through a humble little church. We thank you now. We bless you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. Have a great week. We will see you next Sunday.